0: So we're in a series on the book of Philippians, and the the subtitle is Finding Joy in an Anxious World. And as we move closer and closer to November, with everything else going on in our world, I believe the anxiety is only going to rise with uncertainty about what happens with our nation. And I believe right now we need more than ever to be trying to figure out what it is that brings the joy of Christ to our life that has the power to still our anxieties and our uneasiness. Because the same power, and this is what um, Britton read so well in Ephesians in that prayer, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you and I. Not only strengthens you and I, but comforts you and I, calms you and I, gives joy to you and I. In this book of Philippians, if you were to pick out one word that just seems to, to rise to the top, it's a joy, a word in the Greek language that means, whoa, kick that, um, Joy. And Kara means to joy, it means joy, rejoice, or gladness. And this word occurs over 19 times in the book of Philippians in four short chapters. And each week of this series, what we've been doing is picking out a word that we want to try to add to our vocabulary, add to our focus as followers of Jesus that help us as we seek to follow him. And so the first week we did gratitude, the second week we did purpose, last week we did this word unity. And this word unity is so so important to the church and it's not just simply uniformity where we all look alike and we get along because we all think and do the same thing, but it's this deeper sense of unity where we're all together even though and in spite of our differences. Even though we don't all think the same, act the same, do the same, that there is this common unity, this common bond because we belong to Christ. But the foundation of unity is this self-sacrifice. It's the foundation, it's the beginning. It does not happen when people are not willing to sacrifice their wants, their desires for the good of everyone as a part of the community of faith. And I want to kind of drill down a little bit more from this self-sacrifice this week to the word sacrifice. What does it look like to live a life of sacrifice? Because as Paul talked about Jesus' life of sacrifice and how as his followers we are to have the same mind and the same attitude and imitate him in our life. He moves on to talk about what it looks like for him and the rest of the church to actually live out what Jesus' life looked like. I mean, what would it look like? And that's the question. What would it look like if everyone who followed Jesus had the same mind and the same attitude of Christ? setting aside their powers, their abilities for their own gain and for their own good, and becoming obedient to God and doing whatever it is he called you to in this world to live out the life of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. What what would it look like? What would it change? What would it transform? Not just in your life, but in this world. What would happen? if we truly believed that it was possible to live like Jesus. One of my favorite shows over the past several years is a show that got canceled and then is coming back this year, and it's the show Fixer Upper, and it's on HGTV. I I love the show because what they do is they pick out these homes, and and if you don't know the show, they live in Waco, Texas. Texas. And where they have probably the the ability now to travel all over the country and fix up places everywhere, what they've committed to doing is living as citizens, as part of the community in Waco, Texas, and trying to restore Waco by by helping people build their dream homes. And what they'll do is they'll go into these neighborhoods and they'll find the worst house. They can get a great price on it. And then they can put a lot of money into fixing it up and making it beautiful. And, and I think what I, I love about the show is I'm not one of those people that can visualize. Do you, you know how you have those people that like walk into Home Depot and they see like, you know, 6,000 different color options? And they're like, I want that shade of gray right there. And they can picture their entire house with that one single color. Just a little cardboard swatch and they're not even in their house. And they have, I am the exact opposite of that. Like, you show me that swatch, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. I I have no clue what that's going to look like. Um, Why why don't you get a little bucket and and test it? I need to paint my whole house to test it and see what it looks like. (laughs) That's how I need, but but they'll walk into these homes, and when they walk in, everyone, you look at the the pictures of the people, the, the video of the people, and their faces are like, not, I don't want to live here. And they step back and they say, no, 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 no. Imagine the possibilities. Imagine if we took this wall out. Imagine if we painted this room. Imagine what it would look like with new flooring. And all they see is the possibilities. And, and the problem for the buyers is all they see is the problems and the pitfalls. And I think the beauty of the body of Christ is we have the ability to see the possibilities of what it could be one day. Because what Jesus did was he came and he started this small group of 12 apostles. And he said, I want you to come follow me. I want you to be like me in this world. And they stumbled and they fumbled through this world and tried to figure out how to do that. And more times than not, they failed. And then Jesus says, hey, I'm going to leave you here to do this work by yourself without me. And they start freaking out like, wait, 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 we can't do this without you, Jesus. And he says, it's better that I'm going to go away because I'm going to send my spirit to comfort you and to help you along the way. And they said, we, we're not ready for this. And as the church begins to get traction, it's because it started with these 12 ordinary guys, fishermen and tax collectors. And it was by no means perfect. By, by no means did it look like it was supposed to. But what they had was this picture of possibility because they didn't know much. They didn't know how to do church. All they knew it was we're in this together in the midst of this broken and messed up world and we don't really know what we're supposed to do other than try to imitate Jesus. There, there weren't programs And there wasn't church the way we know it. It was just everyone getting together and celebrating the fact that they knew the tomb was empty. And that Jesus had risen. And if Jesus had risen, everything else was going to change. Nothing was as it used to be. If the tomb was empty then that means death no longer has the final word. If the tomb was empty, there is possibility beyond anything we could ever see. Things are not the way we assume they are. There is beauty and there is possibility in every single person in this place. And what I love about the good news of the gospel of Jesus is it sees that beauty and that possibility in each and every one of us. It sees the brokenness. It sees the pride. It sees the sin and somehow it breaks through the facade. To see the beauty of Christ within every single person. Today is our Reach Sunday. And as we've said from the very beginning, this is not about money, money is a tool that God uses. I love, Mike always says, and and reminds me of this constantly, if we have a problem with money, we don't have a problem. Because money is something that God will take care of. This has never been about money. This has always been about reaching today into tomorrow. This is about the possibility, building into future generations. This is about the people who are not here yet. Um, a couple of years ago, I think this is about two years ago now, I did a, a chart for you, a graph of some demographics and what our church looks like. Um, and I think this was 2018, 2019, somewhere in there. Faye gave me a really hard time about this because what I'm fixing to do. Um, this is kind of our, our curve and where we are age-wise and the breakdown of our church and I think since we've done this, we've, we've added quite a few people to our church, okay? But I want you to fast forward 10 years, and if things just stay as they are, and, and here's why Faye got mad at me. She goes, you just pushed me off the screen. <laughs> go, go back one. If, if we stay where we are for 10 years, the question is, what happens with this generation that's still to come? If we fast forward 10 more years, what happens with these future generations? Because if the trend continues and we aren't focused on reaching the next generation, Ryan, Gracie, Caleb, we all stand up real quick. You don't have to move, don't have to come up here. Matt, I said I wasn't going to do this to you. I lied. My kids are standing up just for everyone. Y'all can sit down, okay? If we're not pouring into that generation right now, what does our church look like in 10 years? We're not pouring into that generation right now. What does our church look like in 20 years? That is what reach is really about. It's not about the money. It's about this generation of kids that we see throughout the auditorium right now. I'm not calling y'all kids. Y'all are young adults. But these kids throughout the auditorium, these kids in 101, 102, those kids at home, that is what reach is really about. And so Paul wants this church that he's built in Philippi to last. He wants it to have staying power. And so he says... Verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, you've always been obedient to what I've said when I was there. But understand, I won't always be there to help you. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? One day, one day you're going to have to do this on your own. One day I'm going to hand everything over to you, and it's going to be your responsibility. So continue to work out your salvation. C- continue to work out, and he's saying this. Remember, this is a letter written from Paul to a church, a group of people, and he, he's not meaning to a building. It would be like him sending us a letter and saying, hey, we're gonna read this letter, and this is addressed to every single." So when he says, work out your salvation, there is a very individual sense to it, like you and you and you and you and you, and you but even more so, there is this collective sense Work out your salvation as the people of God. That that we're going to pursue God together as His church, and we're going to help each other as we follow Jesus. This is not an individual sport. This is a team sport. We're together in this. And everyone is a part. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With with reverence, with awe for who God is. Because as he just said a few um, verses before, one day at the name of Jesus, every single knee on heaven and earth and under the earth is going to bow to King Jesus. Uh, One day Caesar isn't simply sitting on the throne, one day King Jesus reigns fully and finally over all the earth, and everyone will bow and submit to him. That day is coming. And for it is God who works in you to will and act according to fulfill his good purpose. Now, here's the little dichotomy that he creates. He says that you need to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. So, So is it, I'm working for my? It's not, I'm working for my salvation but I'm learning what it looks like to live out my salvation. If Jesus is in your life and he has handed the keys to the kingdom and said you are responsible for building this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You have responsibility in this. It's not just, hey, hands off, go figure it out. We have faith that God's going to show up. It's that, no, you actually have to do some work to build the kingdom it's not working for your salvation it's actually working to um, live it out to make sure it's a part of your life and it looks like the kingdom and it's God who works in you to fulfill it right So, so we're working it out trying to live it out and it's God that's working in you to fulfill his purpose. Another way to think about it, God, here are my hands. They are yours. Do with them as you will. God, I will go wherever you tell me to go. If it's Rome to stand trial, I will go. Use me in any way. If it's in a prison cell, if it's under house arrest, whatever it looks like, use me. All I have is the divorce. Use it. All I have is the loss of a spouse. Use it. All I have is I'm good with, with numbers. Use it. All I have is I'm, I, I have a voice. Use it. Because our life, as we said in week two, is to be lived on purpose. And if your life is lived on purpose, you will repurpose the pain for the glory of God. He will use you in ways you could not imagine, but you do have the responsibility to do the work. And He's going to work out His good purpose in this world using you. And the question is how does God work out your purpose? What are the tools that he uses? I would say, and there's probably a lot more than this, I just wanted to kind of cover four. The the first one is the Word. His Word that he's given that is perfect, that is timeless, um, that that cuts sharper than any double-edged sword, has the power to change and transform your life. That, That we are people of the Word. That we want to know the word, but, but not just simply know what it says, to actually, as James says, live it out. To, to make it a part of our life, to allow it to go past our head and into our heart, where it changes and transforms who we are. Prayer is a second tool, I think, God uses. He, he uses prayer to transform you. And we we think so many times that, that we want prayer to transform our circumstances and our situation, but the purpose of prayer is that it would actually transform you. That through praying, God is changing your heart, and we're asking God to give us a heart for the things that break His heart, and that we would be His people in this world and reflect Him, and that does not come any other way except through prayer. Praying for God to transform and change us. The third is people. I believe there are people, and here's what's crazy. You remember the week one, we talked about things that will steal your joy? One of the things on that list was people. Isn't it crazy? One of the things that has the power and the ability to steal your joy is people, but one of the tools that God will use to grow you as his follower is people. I believe it is so important that you have a community, a smaller, not not 500, not 600 people just gathered in a big place, but a smaller group of people that actually know you and know what's going on in your life and can hold you accountable and can look into your life and say, hey, we see this within you. And that's really hard to do in a bigger group. But God will use people in your life To shape and form you as a follower of Jesus. The third, or the fourth, I'm sorry, the fourth is suffering. God will use suffering to transform you. And I'll be honest out of all four on that list, the one I most want to avoid is the suffering because I don't want to walk through those dark times, those difficult times, those painful times. And a lot of times I'll avoid as much as I can the suffering I see. Paul has what he calls a thorn in the flesh. and He says I prayed Three times for God to take it away. But every time, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. It's in our suffering that we learn God can be trusted. It's in our suffering that we learn that God is faithful. Because you can hear someone say that all day long. But until you actually experience it, you never really know if it's true. Some of you, I know, have walked through incredible, incredible suffering. Things I, I, I would look at and say, I want to avoid that at all costs. But I have seen your life transformed in some beautiful ways through the pain and hurt and uncertainty and anxiety and fear because God is faithful and God is there the whole time. God will use these tools. And I think what you find over the course of your life is God is far more interested in the workman than He is the work that you're doing. We're so consumed with what we do for Christ. But I believe Christ is so consumed with you simply knowing Him and believing the identity He has given you. It's not about the work. God, here are these hands. Use them. Use them to transform this world through me. But it's not about the work. It's about knowing and loving Jesus. You see, God must first work in you before He will ever work through you. And and Paul wants this church to know they have a vocation and it matters. It matters. Verse 14, he says this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. okay? So that, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that You may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Do everything. All the kids, listen. If you if if you're a kid, you live in your house, especially my house. Kids, y'all, listen, okay? Do everything. Everything without grumbling or arguing. Why, why does Paul bring this up? Paul has this narrative, this idea that we are people of the new Exodus. We, we are people following Jesus, the new Moses. Set free, out of captivity. And, and what is it that Israel did in the desert? They complained and they argued about everything. Why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? Why can't we go back to Egypt? In Egypt we had pots of food to eat and everything was great. Now we're in the desert and all we have is manna. We don't have any water. This water is bitter. All they did was argue and grumble and complain. And so he says to these children of God, don't be like them. Don't don't argue and grumble as they did. Follow God as pure and blameless people. Then you will be able to shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And Paul's hope is not just simply that they would shine as a light, but they would be a community of faith that had life. And that life could be seen in the midst of a world that only knows death. It's fixer-upper as Chip and Joanne walk into the house. And everyone says, well, this is not the right house because this doesn't look right. And they say, no, no, no. Think about the possibilities. If you will live your life like Jesus It will show life that this world will not understand. And no matter what the suffering and no matter how difficult the times, even though it looks like you should be dead and there is no sign of life within you, somehow it looks as if there is resurrection. And there is hope and there is possibility in the midst of darkness and despair. There is goodness everywhere because Paul is building something that will last. And what he is building does not matter to which Caesar sits on the throne. Because this Caesar might be there and in fact at the time he's writing it is a guy named Nero Caesar who is insane. And he is the guy who's going to have Paul beheaded and executed because of his faith. The one Paul is trying to get to Rome to stand trial before. And he's had chances to escape, it appears, this whole time. And yet there's Paul. Saying, this is my purpose. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm about. Is your faith in what Christ is doing in this world as strong as Paul's faith in Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus, Messiah, strong enough to carry you no matter who is on the throne? We have an election coming up in six weeks. If anyone didn't know that, um, you'll hear about it more in the next six weeks, I'm sure. Um, no doubt. Let me ask a question. And I know you're, you're, everyone in here is probably really opinionated and has all their ideas. Let me ask a question real quick. Is your faith in Jesus Messiah? dependent on who wins an election. Or or do you believe as much and as difficult it is that no matter what happens, come November, the King Jesus is still on the throne and that we submit our life to him to his rule and his reign. As John says in Revelation 11, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Do you believe that? Because Paul says if you do, if you do, If you'll do everything in a way that's different from everyone else, then you will shine like stars in the sky. And that doesn't mean don't vote. That doesn't mean don't have an opinion. But it does mean at the end of the day, King Jesus still reigns forever and ever, regardless of who wins an election. You have a vocation, and they are looking forward to this day of Christ, this day when Messiah reigns, going on to verse 16. And then you will be able to boast on the day of Christ. It's the day of Christ's return that he's referring to. We're, we're looking forward to, we're waiting when Christ is fully and finally King of all and everyone and every nation, every tribe, every tongue submits and bows their knee to King Jesus. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is doing his best to imitate Christ and to look like Jesus And he says, I am, even if I'm being poured out, even if I'm a sacrifice, even if I'm going to Rome, even if I'm risking my life on your behalf, regardless of what is happening, I find joy in this moment. Because my joy is found in Christ being made known throughout this world. Remember, that was Paul's purpose. That Christ would be known. That Christ would be exalted. That every knee would bow before King Jesus. So, I'm glad and I rejoice with you. Paul finds that there is joy in sacrifice. Not offering a sacrifice. Sacrifice. But actually, being one. What do you mean by be a sacrifice? It means we lay down our life for the good of one another, for the good of the community of faith. It might mean. That we lay down our desire and our need to be right for the good of future generations. It might mean that we set aside our pride for the good of community. It might mean we lay down our grudges that we have with one another that cause arguing and division. Because what we're not interested in is uniformity. What we are interested in is unity. And the only way we arrive at unity is through self-sacrifice. And what Paul says is if you will lay down your life for the good of one another, you will find exceeding joy. But that does not happen without God working in your life through those tools of prayer, the Word, people, and suffering. God God works in your life to transform and change who you are. There was a young boy who was waiting for his dad to come home from work. And he was so excited for his dad to walk through the door so that he could play. And the little boy was about five years old. And he hears the car pull up, and he hears the door shut, and he runs downstairs to meet his dad at the door. And his dad opens the door and walks through, and he says, hey, son. And he said, dad, 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 let's play. And the dad says, son... I've got a deadline at work tomorrow, and I'm going to be so busy tonight. There's no way I have time to play. And the son was dejected, and the dad could see it. He said, just give me an hour. And in an hour, I'll take a break, and we can go play. And the son walks off, and he was disappointed as any any little five-year-old would be. And he keeps coming back every five, six minutes and saying, Dad, has it been an hour? Dad, has it been an hour? And finally the dad gets this brilliant idea. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a puzzle to put together. And when you get the puzzle put together, I think it's going to have been about an hour. And so he grabs a magazine off of his desk and he pulls it out. And on it was a picture of the world, picture of a globe. And he cuts up the picture into a bunch of little pieces, and he sweeps them off into his hand, and he says, here, hands them to his son. he says, son, go in the other room and put this world back together, and then we'll play. So the son runs off to the other room, and he sits down at the kitchen table, and he spreads out the pieces, and he works, and he works, and about five minutes later, the son comes running back in the room, and to the father's amazement, the son had gotten the picture put back together, and the dad said, how in the world did you get the world put back together? And He said, dad, that was easy. On the other side, there was a picture of a man. And when I got the man right, the world was right. How true. How true for you and I. We want the world to be right. But the hands and feet that Jesus has empowered To make the world right are your hands and your feet and my hands and my feet. The question is will we use those hands and those feet to build our kingdom on earth? Or the kingdom of God in Christ on earth? as it is in heaven. Today is all about possibility. It's about what we could build. It's about what we could imagine. It's about what we could do with the power of Christ working in us. Because before God will ever work through you, He must work in you. Father, today, we pray for your presence in this place. Father, not just for today, but for future generations, people that we have not met, people that we do not know, people that you have called us to engage with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, Father, that for us begins with sacrifice. It begins with letting go of our need to be right our holding on to grudges, our arrogance, our pride, and, Father, finding Jesus and the humility of Christ to empower and lift us up. Father, it's our prayer that Your Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, would live in us And empower us with the message of Christ to go into this world as your disciples, your hands and feet. Father, change us, transform us, in Jesus' name, amen.